Thank you so much for joining our online services. Our heart is for everyone to be connected to a local body of believers. This online service is meant to be a supplement for those times when you are not able to attend. We sure hope to see you soon. Well, there are a few things that I wanted to let you know about. The first one is our 97,000 texting option. This is a way for you to be able to send your confidential prayer requests. And man, here at the church, our elders and our staff team, we love to pray for you. So please go ahead and text us anytime. Well, if you would like to learn more about our various ministries, we encourage you to check out our website and see all the things that are happening every week at our church and a way for you to get involved. We'd love for you to join us. Well, our ABF ministry, it is only made possible through your generous financial contributions. So we would be just grateful if you would consider giving us a donation. Um, you're welcome to go to our website and there is a give tab, which makes it super easy and simple. Well, at this time, we are going to start off with our service. So join us as we dig into God's word. Well, good morning. For the people who don't know me, my name is Bill Berry. And um, I was just thinking about how long I've been going to this church Got married in 1981, and a year later, we moved out here to Agora um, to be closer to the beach. And we found this little church uh, back in the middle of nowhere and started attending. And that was 1982. I was just looking at the calendars, 2022, which means I've been here for 40 years. Um, served on a lot of different things. My wife and I have been involved in a lot of things at, at ABF, but um, we, we love the church here. We're in a study, an ongoing study, of the book of Californians. I mean, I'm sorry, with Corinthians. Uh, hard to tell sometimes. We're talking about church, and uh, sometimes the, the Californian church doesn't look too much different from the Corinthian church. Uh, both, both are sometimes messy. And I uh, thought I'd share a little bit about um, my, my story as it relates to church. Um, I became a Christian when I was 18 years old. I went to a great church with a great pastor. I loved my church experience. The church was growing. Everything looked great. After a couple of years, our pastor was invited to move up to Portland, Oregon, and become the president of a uh, Bible college up in, um, up in Portland. And so he did that. Uh, there was a lay guy in the church who was a counselor and a gifted communicator, and it made sense that he would become the new head pastor of the church. We'll call him Pastor A. People loved Pastor A's teaching, and the church community continued to grow. Unfortunately, after a while, Pastor A had a different vision for the elders, a different vision than the elders in terms of which way the church should go. I never knew all the details, but Pastor A didn't like the way that the elders were running the church. And ultimately, Pastor A resigned. Then he started a new church in the same community. Because the people loved his teaching, a lot of those people that were in that church went with Pastor A. And um, 
the original church, a church of more than 1,000 people, dwindled to about 150 people. Meanwhile, Pastor A's church continued to grow and flourish. In fact, the church was so successful that it bought a large piece of property and built a beautiful church building on that site. You can imagine there were some pretty hard feelings for the small remnant that remained in the original church. They felt betrayed. They felt wounded. They wondered if they could even keep the church going at all. Then, Pastor A was rumored to have had an affair with the church secretary. Then, there were allegations of improper use of funds. Things turned south quickly. Pastor A resigned. After a while, they brought in a new pastor, but um, the damage had been done. The exodus continued from the church, and it never recovered. There were a lot of people from both churches that were hurt, confused, angry, and bitter. Think about people who stayed in the original church, how they must have felt abandoned by the people who left. Then to see some of those same people come back to the original church, having left, you can imagine their hurt feelings. How many people gave up on church or gave up on God after going through that kind of a mess? So that was my first church experience. For those of you who have been around ABF for a while, you know that we've certainly had our share of difficult times as well. When the people of God didn't act like the people of God. Maybe we can take heart that the churches in the New Testament, especially the church in Corinthians, were just as messy and just as messed up as our churches are today. Can we just agree that church is messy? There is no perfect church because church is made up of imperfect people. Those people will disappoint you. They'll make bad decisions because the church is made up of people. In 1 Corinthians, Paul doesn't pull any punches. Scott mentioned in his first uh, message some of the areas where the Corinthian church was, was pretty messed up. They were involved in people worship. They questioned Paul's credentials as an apostle. There was sexual immorality. There was prostitution. There was misuse of gifts of the Spirit. They were suing each other. There was idolatry. People were getting drunk at communion. I mean, this place was pretty messed up. And this had, the Apostle Paul was the founding uh, leader of that church. So we're going to see three things in this passage. The first is what I'll call caustic immaturity in the church. Secondly, Paul will bring us back to our spiritual foundation. And thirdly, we're going to look ahead to our spiritual reward. This is a rich, rich passage. Paul went to Corinth on his second missionary journey. He founded the church in Corinth and he stayed with the church for a year and a half. He describes himself as giving them milk to eat because they're just baby Christians. But now, roughly five years later, they still drink only milk. Imagine you have a baby in the house. Baby's one year old. You're going to be giving it a bottle. It's going to be drinking milk. But fast forward five years. If that five-year-old is now taking a baby bottle off to school, you got a problem. There's something wrong in the way that you've brought up the child. And in the same way, there's something wrong in the way that this church has grown. So Paul writes a letter really chastising the people of the church. 
He says, I can't address you as people who live by the Spirit, but I address you as people who are worldly. You're infants in Christ. I gave you milk like I'd feed a baby. You're not ready for solid food. That would make sense in their first year, but now five years later, they can only tolerate milk spiritually. He says, you're worldly, meaning you're caught up in the things of the world and not the things of God. Paul's right to be concerned. An infant is one who has no power and needed assistance by parents and guardians. They've been born again, but they have no wisdom and they have no power. This would be like a Christian today who rarely prays, except in terms, uh, except when there's, you know, something major going wrong. They rarely read their Bible, and they live with one foot in the church and one foot in the world. That would be normal, actually, for a brand new Christian. But these people have had a relationship with Jesus for a long time, and they should be maturing, and they should be praying, and they should be understanding Scripture. Now remember, the Greek culture took pride in philosophy and worldly wisdom. So Paul asked them to do a complete 180. They think they're wise, but by the way that they walk with Jesus, they're babies, and they don't comprehend all that God has for them. The wonderful verse that Scott read last week, 1 Corinthians 2, it says, I has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. And these infant believers were missing out on all that God could shower in. I know some of you are baby Christians. And other, others of you are quite, not quite sure if you crossed the line of faith and trusted Jesus. And that's okay. Here in Corinth, it was appropriate for Paul to feed them milk because they hadn't progressed past the very basics. If you're new in the way of Jesus, talk with me, talk with one of the pastors, talk with the person that invited you here, um, and talk to them about how you can begin to grow in a relationship with God. So, You'll see as we move through this book that the transition from pagan Greek culture to embracing Jesus as the only savior of mankind was a really particularly difficult transition to make in their culture. So if you're struggling, be sure to reach out for help. I'd say a fair description of the people at the Church of Corinth would be that they embraced Jesus, but they weren't quite sure where to go once they did. And many of them continued to embrace the pagan lifestyle around them. What's especially interesting to me is that this church in Corinth may have had the best lineup of Christian leaders of any church in the ancient world. First, you've got Paul, who founded the church. Paul was a tent maker. And this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, came to Corinth, they met Paul, they were both tent makers, and so they, they built this bond, and Paul led them to Christ, and they became leaders in the church at Corinth. <clears throat> Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia to, jo to join Paul, and later Priscilla and Aquila went to Ephesus where they met Apollos, and they sent Apollos back to the Corinthian church. So you've got this all-star lineup. You've got Paul, Silas, Apollos, Timothy, Priscilla, and Aquila, all ministering in Corinth, they're all very different people. Saul's 
Paul is soft-spoken, not very eloquent. Apollos is mighty in scripture and eloquent and fervent in spirit. Priscilla and Aquila use their hospitality to connect with people. Timothy is kind of timid, but he's a faithful guy who will go anywhere and do anything. Note that God puts all kinds of personalities together to reach people for Christ. When I was in Bible school in Portland, a group of us would go out to Portland State University and we would enter into discussions and conversations about spiritual things with people. I would kind of tiptoe out there and be very timid and ask people if we could have a a talk about spiritual things. Well, one of the guys that went with us um, on that, uh, I think it was like every Tuesday, his name was Tana Singerihara. I'll never, never forget this guy. He, he was from India. He's just bigger than life. He's a big guy. He's got this, this rough Indian accent. He's just bigger than life and, and incredibly um, gifted in evangelism. And it seemed like every time we went out on Tuesday afternoon, we'd come back and we'd group and we'd share our stories. And Tana Singerihara would typically, you know, say, I had three people pray to receive Christ with me today. That certainly wasn't my experience every time that we went out, but we were out there, uh, out there enjoying ourselves and sharing Christ. Anyway, despite the, all of the great teachers and leaders who rotated through the church at Corinth, the Corinthians were still immature. The church at Corinth was six years old when this letter was written. Most of the Christians were still spiritual babies, like I said before, because the city of Corinth was such a moral mess after Paul left. There arose all kinds of problems, including incest, prostitution, idolatry, and pagan practices. In addition to the moral issues, there arose factions in the church. One person would say, I'm of Paul. Another one would say, I'm of Apollos. Paul reprimands them, saying every person has a role in helping people come to Christ and grow in Christ. We can get that way, right? I follow Timothy Keller. I I like Andy Stanley. Well, I I follow John Mark Comer. And and we kind of get into this thing where we identify ourselves by who we like on the radio. Uh, The list goes on and on. I've spoken with a lot of people who love to listen to the pastor fill in the blank on the radio or on a podcast. And that's okay. It can be helpful. But I have seen a lot of people over the years who feed themselves from the internet, the radio, the TV, and they're not, they've heard a lot of teaching, but they don't really mature. It's been said that people don't grow in, in rows, they grow in circles, where people are connected to other people, where they do life together. If you really want to mature and grow in Christ, my advice would be to join a life group. And you can talk to any of the pastors here about getting, in, getting involved in something like that. Paul says that we're all fellow workers. He doesn't put himself higher than other people. Everyone in the church has a role in the church body of Christ. So Paul has spent some time talking about caustic immaturity. And this is a pretty immature church. And they're attached to the world around them. Their lives are not distinctive. Immorality, divorce, lawsuits, factions are going on, and Paul's calling them out. But now, Paul turns his attention to where and how we should be growing and how we should fit in to what God is doing in his church. So now we get to verse 5 and 6, which I just love. 
What is the role that we play? What is God looking for in his people? Apollos and Paul are servants through whom you came to believe. And then it says in verse five and six, Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. This idea of planting and watering is a key to this passage. Paul planted, Apollos watered. What was God looking for? He was looking for people who will plant and people who will water in order to cause growth. This idea of planter, planting and watering becomes a really important picture in the text. Paul has planted, he comes to people, he helped people come into a relationship with God. Apollos watered. That means he helped people grow in their faith. This is what we're all called to do, to plant where people come into a relationship with God and to water where people grow in Christ in a healthy way. I was thinking of a friend who I spent time with, helping him understand the gospel, answering questions, challenging when, if he was ready to give his life to Christ. After a long time, he was ready, and he finally trusted Christ. What was interesting to me was that several other people in the church took this guy under their wing, and from that point on, they invited him to Bible studies, they helped him mature in his faith, I planted these other people at church, watered, and this guy just grew. What are the results of planting and watering? Well, let's be selfish. What is in it for us if we engage in helping people come into a relationship with Jesus and help them grow in Christ in a healthy way? Scripture tells us there's actually a reward for that. There's a reward in heaven for people who do these two things. They plant and they water. He who plants and he who waters will receive their own reward according to his own labor. So hold on to this idea of rewards. We're going to come back to that. So the idea of rewards is it's going to going to be a key theme in the remaining verses. Then in verse 10, Paul switches metaphors, but he's saying the same thing twice. He talks about building a building and says, Paul laid the foundation and other people have come and built on that foundation. So Paul lays the foundation, which is symbolic of somebody coming into a relationship with Jesus. And other people built the building on top of the foundation. Those are the people, that's like, that's like the ones who water. So one lays the foundation, other builds upon that foundation, and then Paul expands on this idea of rewards. There is no foundation that can be laid but the foundation of Jesus Christ. If you have that foundation, it can't be taken away. If you have any other foundation, personal accomplishments, professional success, good works, being a good person, whatever, it's not foundational at all. Nobody will spend eternity with God unless their only foundation is Jesus Christ. That's how you can tell a cult from Christianity. All cults have Jesus plus something. Jesus plus good works. Jesus plus abstaining from coffee. Jesus plus uh, knocking on enough doors. 
It's critical to understand as we look at the next couple of verses. Verse 11 is all about having the right foundation. What we just said, that you trust Christ alone for your salvation. Starting in verse 12, Paul isn't talking about salvation. He's talking about rewards. I just love this verse, starting with verse 12. It says, now if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident because the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work remains, he'll receive, what? A reward. If any man's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved yet as through fire. So some people read this and they think, wow, if my work is burned up, I'm going to suffer loss. I'm not going to go to heaven. And on the other side, if you do just enough to get yourself into heaven, you'll make it there, but you're going to smell like smoke. That is not what this verse is saying. Passage is not saying if you don't do enough, you miss the cut. The last part of verse 15 explicitly says, yet he himself will be saved, but so as through fire. I picture the homeowners in the Woolsey fire where they would, have an, they would interview a person standing in front of their completely destroyed home. They're always so thankful that they were saved, but everything that they had was burned up. That word picture motivates me to want to build my foundation on the spiritual materials that won't burn. We've got to realize what Paul is talking about here. It's eternal rewards for people who have already trusted Jesus for their salvation. The verse starts now, if anyone builds upon the foundation, the foundation is Jesus Christ. This is not teaching we get to heaven by our good works. That doesn't even sound like the Bible. But it does say that our good works are rewarded. There's actually lots of passages that deal with the rewards of heaven. This one here, if you build gold, silver, precious stones, you will receive a reward. In 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, righteous God, shall award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. David Jeremiah puts it this way. The judgment seat of Christ is not a final exam to determine our suitability for heaven. If we trusted Jesus as our Savior, our sins have been forgiven. And that's what qualifies us to enter the holy presence of God. Now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, our faithful service to him will be evaluated and rewarded. And what is faithful service? It's planting and it's watering. It's building the foundation and then building upon the foundation. It's bringing people who are far from God into a relationship with God and it's helping people who know God to grow in relationship with him. With perfect knowledge, he will assess our every thought, motive, and action. 
The prospect of coming judgment should motivate us to be more like Christ in our daily life, running our spiritual race towards his heavenly rewards. You know, there's several rewards or crowns that are mentioned in Scripture. Some have elaborated on what each crown means. There's a victor's crown, the crown of rejoicing, the crown of righteousness, the crown of life, the crown of glory. You know, we can only speculate what those rewards are in heaven because we can only speculate what heaven's like. One author I read proposed that the reward may just be seeing those they taught, those they planted, and those they watered standing with them in glory. I kind of like that. I don't like to speculate too much in heaven. You know, we already talked about 1 Corinthians 2. It says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. We can't conceive of what the presence of God will be like. Just to be with him is all we could ever imagine. But God throws in heavenly rewards because he is a generous God. There's an interesting passage in Revelation, chapter 4. The elders are seated around the throne. And the elders who have these golden crowns, it says that the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him whose lives will worship him who lives forever and ever. And they will cast their golden crowns before the throne of God, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. You know, it's pretty cool to think that these rewards that were given by God may be used to better worship him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this is a pretty raw passage. It doesn't cover up the blemishes. Um, it doesn't sweep things under the rug. Paul is very deliberate and very honest, and he calls things as they are. Father, we want to be people who love you, who serve you, who obey you, and uh, God, I just, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for the rewards um, that you've set out before us that motivate us to, um, to run the race. And uh, so, Father, we, we do just thank you. I pray for anybody in this room who has not yet come into a relationship with God, that you would seek someone out, that you would go hard after God, because if you do, he promises that you'll find him. Lord, we give you the rest of this day. In Christ's name, amen.